0: So as Drew mentioned, we are kicking off now the first 10-week series in our Believe uh, sermon series. Believe is one of the things that we talked about last week and at the heart of this whole kind of school year series that's made up of three smaller series, is that ultimately as Christians, um, we believe that we are in the process of becoming what we already are in Jesus. That we are in the process of becoming what we already are in Jesus. And what is that? Last week we talked about you are, here's the truth, whether you believe this or not yet, or you've known it for a long time and need to be refreshed. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ. God did not waste his time in creating you, he did not waste his time in saving you, and he does not waste his time in restoring and breathing his new life into you. You are a new creation. That is a finished work of Jesus gifted to us. And yet, how many of us feel that this morning? Oh no, Right? No. That's got to be, we learn to let that come out of us, right? Like a good code, we go, it's in you, we just got to help it get out of you, right? We've got to help you learn to live into that new creation. So how do we do that? This first series really highlights how we think. I ended the sermon last week talking about kind of think, act, B and going, what were you thinking, right? How many of you have ever had someone say that to you? And not in an endearing way, Right? (laughs) What were you thinking? Someone you said that to me last week and like how I can be a Bears fan. What are you thinking? <laughs> they have a new daddy and his name is Jordan Love. So yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we'll leave that there. I, I'm, a, I'm a little hurt still. <laughs> What we think matters, right? What we think informs who, what the things we do, what, we, what, what we're going to maybe hold on to or let go of or, 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 or how we navigate challenging times or even good times, right? What we think matters. This first series is on the core truths of the Christian faith. Now, throughout all of this, I can spend tons of time, like today, we are going to talk about the Trinity. God as one person, one essence, and three, or not one person, sorry, one God, three persons. I'm going to have to be really, you know, watch my wording here. One God, one essence, three persons. Now that already there goes, whoo took the church 300 years to kind of come into a clear definition of that, following Jesus, and for 1,700 years since, we've been trying to make sense of it, okay? It's a human construction to try to understand a biblical revelation. Right? I can't give you every Bible passage on the Trinity, on what it means that there's one God and then what all the essences. is. I, I just can't. We don't have the time to just focus on one God. Let alone then to go, how does the three persons work? I, I, I can't do that. In this series, I'm going to go, this is the Christian core belief. right? This is orthodox. This is what we've believed throughout centuries, thousands of years. And this is what we believe the Bible says. What I'm going to try to do my best to do is help you understand why it's important. What is the implication of believing in this one God, this one essence that is God, Who ends up revealing self in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons. So today, our question is who is God? Who is God? And the core belief, the core truth that we hold to as Christians, that you're on a journey of believing, whether you don't at all, to, oh, I'm confident of this. If you're confident, let's talk because I'd like to hear more of how that all works. I'm still figuring this one out. But it's this. I believe the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then we're going to give you this text and this is in those Believe books that we've, we've kind of put out, and I'm, I'm just kind of following that to help structure the messages each and every week. But this core text I want you to hang your hat on today is 2 Corinthians 13-14. It, it's Paul's last words to the Corinthian church in writing that we, are, that we know of. And he says this, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and for him that is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So by the time Paul is writing to say that there's this one God, and he was a Pharisee, he was a religious leader, so he would be one, as we'll hear later on, who ascribes to, there is one God we believe in, already says, but it's th- there are these equal persons. Jesus Christ, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Right, And in it has some of the implications. But before we get there, I want to wrestle with why is the question, who is God, important? Why is this question even worth us talking about this morning? Why why does this question matter in our lives? For the answer to that, I want to take us to Tim Keller, pastor, author. And he writes uh, in his book, Center Church, Doing Balanced Gospel-Centered Ministry in Your City, He writes this about the question of, uh, really, why does God matter? He says this, everyone has to live for something. And if that something is not big G God, then we're driven by that thing we live for. Maybe if I supplant this morning the word God for an organizing principle how many of us have organizing principles in our life that kind of arrange life for us, that give us a groundedness or give us direction, right? Every person on the face of the earth has organizing principles. Now Keller says, hey, there's this God, and I'm gonna, I want to go further, so I invite you just to listen in more to what he says. So if it's not the big G God that we as Christians believe, the one God, then we are driven by the thing that we live for by overwork to achieve it, right? How many of you have ever been overworked <laughs> to achieve what you're driving for? By inordinate fear if it's threatened? That thing that leads us, guides us, that all of a sudden if it's threatened, we get fearful, and afraid. It goes deep anger if it's being blocked, kept from us. Or how about this inconsolable despair? If what we're fighting for, we're driving for is lost? And then he goes on to say, so the novelist David Foster Wallace, now David Foster Wallace wasn't a Christian, and I think it's good context for what he's about ready to say. Um, But what he writes, um, and this was before his actual suicide, he spoke to the 2005 graduating class at Kenyon College. And listen to what Wallace has to say. Everybody worships, non-Christian, everybody worships. So this isn't just, religious language, it's not just church language. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what to worship. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason, listen to him, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of little g God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much every. Anything else you worship will eat you alive. This is coming from a non-Christian. The only compelling reason to, to worship some kind of God, spiritual God, like to have religion in your life, is because any other thing you worship will pretty much eat you alive. And listen to the rest of what he has to say. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Or never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Right? How many times do people... Hang on to power because actually in their own self, there's insecurity. There's a lack of. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they are unconscious. See, we often don't wrestle with the question of who is God just as this thing we live, maybe not asking this unconscious question, he says not only are they unconscious, they are our default settings. Who is God? I hope by now you feel and sense the need to answer this question is incredibly important for us. What organizes your life determines often who you will become. In our unconscious setting within the framework of humanity is we are always, our, our, our story, apart from the one true God and Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit bringing his life into the world, we are stuck in a world where we are between conflicting gods. We are stuck in a life where gods are always at war, driving, organizing principles are always pulling us from one part, one thing over here to the next over here, amen? When, we don't have, when money is my goal and I don't have enough, I'm being pulled here. But when I'm also feeling insecure and unvalued, I'm being pulled here and now I don't know which way to go. I don't know how to answer the question. I don't know who I am or even where I am. The question of who God is is fundamental to who we are. The Bible starts by saying, in the beginning, God. And as Christians, we answer that question by seeing that God, there is this God, there's a God who not only creates the world but comes into relationship with it. And when he comes down to Moses in Exodus uh, three and he's, he's heard the cries of people Israel and he's going to save them. He's going to rescue them from being oppressed and uh, just stepped on by Pharaoh in Egypt, the empire of the day. Right? He says, you are my people. I'm going to bring you into new life through you. I'm going to bless the world. <laughs> Here's how God, the biblical God, reveals himself. I am who I am. That's what you're going to tell him, right? This is what you're going to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So when we are, as Christians, dealing with who God is, the first thing we need to start with is God is beyond our comprehension. God is self-defined. We don't get to determine him. He determines himself, right? So even as we start talking about this one essence, three people, guess what? God can define himself in that way because God is God and I am not. Why do we make God an individual? Because God, in the form that we see throughout the Old Testament, is spirit, the, 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 the Belgic Confession, which I'll dive into more in just a little while, which is conf- just theology of, for our, our tradition and our church, goes, yeah, God has no parts, right? The, the one God, we, we don't see having parts and person, like, not an individual. God is a being. And He is who He is. Whether we can wrap our mind around it or not doesn't really matter. Actually, I would say if we can wrap our mind around God, God is too small. Because how can the internal, infinite, uncomprehensible truly be something less than a mystery? We might be able to grab onto parts and pieces of who God is, but God, in its very essence, is beyond us. God say, I am who I am. And God throughout the Bible is always condescending to us, always coming to our level. Next week we're going to talk about God being a personal God. This is incredibly important. But God always condescends, always comes to our level instead of waiting for us to come to his He goes, I'm incomprehensible, but guess what? Through the three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, I'm going to make myself more relatable. I'm going to make myself, I'm going to reveal myself in a way that you can begin to understand. But our journey in life is exactly that, right? It's a journey. goes on to say in Deuteronomy, we hear this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? At, at the core of believing, we have one God. The, the Jewish people were a monotheist society. One God, not multitudes. They had plenty of options. Baal, Asherah, I mean, and, and the list goes on of surrounding communities. But we love the Lord our God, right? With our heart, with our soul, with all our strength. That is the call of those who believe in this one God. I mentioned the Belgic Confession um, Guido de Bray wrote in uh, 1560, let me make sure I get the, the, the actual date, 1561, uh, was writing this confession because as the Protestant church, and they were going through the Reformation, right, was trying to reform the Catholic, the universal church at the time, um, they were getting pushback, right? Because sometimes when we're getting somebody holds a mirror up to us, we don't like it. Or David Foster Wallace's quote on power, we don't like it when somebody takes away our power. We feel <laughs> we maybe have to trust in something more than us. But, but during the Reformation, they were trying to say, hey, there's some things that need to change. But in the midst of that, the Catholic Church then began persecuting the Protestant Church. And in the Netherlands, so Hardaway comes from the Netherlands. So if you didn't know that, some Dutch heritage for you. That's why we have in the Christian Reformed Church, the Reformed Church, Dutch confessions, the Belgic. But in this confession, The first thing he writes, he's trying to say to the church, listen, we're good citizens and we believe in the same God you do. He starts by giving all of these attributes about who God is. That God is eternal. We believe God is eternal. We believe God is incomprehensible. And by the way, right before this, he says, we believe God is one. The one God. Not multitudes of gods. But invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, good, the source. Of all that is good. This is the God that the Bible reveals to us, the one God we worship. And when we think about God's revelation through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity contain these attributes. They both, they all share in the essence the stuff that makes God up. Now, I'm gonna, folks, I'm working, because. Language has limits. This morning, my language has limits. The stuff of God, the essence of God, God. So it's easier just to say God. God is. Right? But Jesus, the Father, the Son, all share co-equally, they're equal. They're, co- they're all eternal. They're all, there's a level of incomprehensible, like, I, I can't understand even, I, uh, we get to see Jesus and I still can't comprehend Jesus, right? The Spirit lives within us, I can't, still can't make sense, because it's still God. Well, how do we get to this Trinity then? Well, the Bible helps us at the very beginning, as a, God's creating humanity, we hear this language and back in the day, uh, they thought, well, this was just really kind of uh, the, the, um, the counsel of God. But as time has come now, as Jesus came into the world, as we have the Holy Spirit, we now understand this is that three persons taking place in the one essence. It says, then God said, let us, not let me, let us. This corporate entity that makes up who God is. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move. Along the ground. So they could participate in governing and walking and helping us create in this world. Like, we have a unique position. But humanity was created in the image of God and not just an individual. But what we will come to see is the three persons. Jesus. Like, the series is called Think Like Jesus. So what did Jesus think about who God was? Probably the clearest picture of that is from John 14 through John 17. Again, I can't cover all of this. But listen to some of the language that Jesus uses in John 14. He's talking to Thomas and Philip, and he's talking about returning to heaven, um, to God's dwelling place. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, listen to this, you will know my Father as well. So if you know me, you know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Wait a what? So if you see me, you see the Father. Like, we aren't separate. You can't take us apart. Like, there's something that you're going to know about the Father that you're going to see in me. Why? Because we're God. I am the one true God. And then he goes on to say in verses 15 through 18, If you love me, keep my commands. Right? Deuteronomy. Follow me. Right? with all your heart, your soul, your strength. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Now the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And then listen to this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the Holy Spirit's going to, but you're going to come to me and then you're going to heaven. Uh, What? Now, can you understand why our our language has limits? But Jesus is anchoring and showing us that, listen, the Father, the Son, the Spirit are all God. But they're revealing the working of God in different ways. They are not each other. We have a confession in the Christian faith called the Athanasian Creed. Um, and if you ever have time, so over on our resource page at you there's a link there to go to con- creeds and confessions of, of our church. I'd encourage you to read that. The Athanasian Creed was written in the 6th century, so 500s. Um, and it's attributed to Athanasius, who in the 3rd and 4th century contended for this truth. Right? Fought that Father, Son, and Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, that, but they are, they're distinct. They're the economy of God, while the ontology, the being of God, is all one. So that, that's how like us pastor types geek out. okay There's an ontological God and an economical part of God. The ontological is his essence, one God. The economical is the working. The persons of God. How God works out life. And they're all distinct. This represents that Athanasian Creed in a simple way. Like a triangle, no point is greater than the other. This is not a a hierarchy thing. But in the middle, we have God, right? And God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. However, Jesus is not the Father. They are different and distinct in the working of God. Jesus is the Savior of the world who became flesh. The Father never became flesh. The Holy Spirit doesn't become flesh. The Spirit lives and dwells within us while the Father and the Son dwell in God's realm, heaven. Whoa. Anybody? Right, when we think of the Father, That oftentimes Jesus would say, I go by the will of the Father. The Father seems to be the cause, the origin, the source. In the working out of God and God's ways, God's wills in the world, tends to be be driving the boat. Right? Again, it doesn't make him greater or less than. It's just the functioning of God through the Father tends to be this origin and source. Where Jesus then becomes the word, the wisdom, and the image of God, right The tangible became man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and, and through all that God spoke and the world became. That's Jesus. all things were created by Him, for him, through Him. And then you have the Holy Spirit, which is kind of this eternal power and might, the living presence of God. I, I, I always I think about that the, the Holy Spirit is sort of the animating. Working of God, See, it was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. It was the Holy Spirit, that part of God, that did that work. While Jesus died and God's will was that Jesus would come and give his life for us, right? The perfect working of God brought about salvation for all of us. Woo, there's some words. <laughs> now can you see why people, like I wrote, read Michael Bird's evangelical theology, this week, on, and just his section on the Trinity was like 90 pages, right? He's going, how do we work this all, you know, and, and, and just trying to understand one God, three persons, right? This is the core truth of the Christian faith. We believe the God of the Bible is the only, we can say, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? It brings us back to 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, I want to highlight a couple words for you because this is why it's important. We haven't already gotten there in the terms of like, what's the organizing principle of your life? And by the way, if you don't have one, you have multiple. And the multitude will always lead you back into that human origin story of gods in conflict. And if the gods are in conflict, you will always be in conflict. But God, by being one, anchors us, gives us one reason, one purpose, one goal. And we see that in who God is. Paul writes the what of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? The grace. In the love of God, the love of the Father. And this isn't love just simply in an way way, actually. It's in a fidelity way. It's in a faithfulness. It's in a radical commitment that says nothing will ever sever my relationship with you. Why? Because that relationship is seen in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' prayer in John 17, he says, Father, just as you have loved me long before the creation of this world, (laughs) I pray they'll know our love and they'll grow in that love together. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit God is community. That the God we serve is a God who brings things together and doesn't seek to tear them apart. A God who says, I'm about faithfulness and commitment and I'm not leaving the world to itself. Here's the thing, when we worship all those other gods, we are posturing for something, pandering for something, or positioning for something. And we're always wondering if we're ever going to be there. Amen? Are we enough? Do we have enough? Have we gotten there? Do I belong? Do I matter? See, the Christian God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the only story that says fundamentally yes. And that's my gift to you. <laughs> yes. You matter. You loved. You belong. Even when sin took, it dis, came in and separated things, even when the gods get at conflict in your own life, your organizing principles start shifting and moving, and you feel like you've lost it all, guess what? Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, that before Paul ever wrote that in Romans 8, he says, oh, by the way, comes alive through the Holy Spirit. This fellowship of God, the three persons that all share in the essence of God, have one purpose for our lives. That's to restore it and renew it and bring it into life with God. We were created for Him and by Him. We were created to have life, not to keep having it torn away. Grace, love, fellowship. You want a reason for why the Trinity matters? Right there. Those three words unmerited, unearned favor, radical commitment of God to you and to me, and that we're never alone. So, we're, we're gonna get ready here to take communion. We have communion with God because of Jesus and, and the working of the Spirit and the will of the Father. We have communion with God, we are invited to His table. Because he chooses it, and he chooses you. And there's nothing that can ever separate you from that. Just a couple verses earlier, in verse 11, we write, finally, Paul says, brothers and sisters, rejoice, right? You want reason to rejoice? That's it. Strive then, he says, for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. Right, The implications of this is that's how we start to live in peace in this world as we stay anchored in a God who is peace, right? What does he say? And the God of love and peace will be with you. What we believe about who God is matters. This whole Trinity thing, whether or not you can wrap your mind around it, I don't need you to wrap your mind around it this morning. And I don't think God actually needs you to wrap your mind around it. It was a human construction in the first 300 years of the church to try to go, this is who God is. This is how God reveals itself. That's what God wants to do. He says, come to me. Let's work this out together. Keep getting to know me. And I'm going to keep doing everything I can to help you know me. But there is peace between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. No one's ever contending with the other. No one's ever fighting for position. No one's ever backstabbing. No one's ever undercutting. No one. There is what? A common purpose. There is a common goal. And we are invited into that common goal and that common purpose that brings peace. Whereas everything else leaves us breathless. Looking for it trying to keep our heads above water. Jesus wrote, said in John 14, 19, 20, before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Again, just blows our mind. That that alone, right? Yeah, the world won't see me anymore, but you'll see me. What? Because I live, what happened? You also will live. We are inseparably connected to this God. Because he lives, we're going to live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and what? You are in me and I am in you. The Trinity matters. What we believe about who God is matters. It sets a tone, a story for us. It invites us into not only God's story, but to work that story out, one that's filled with grace Love, fidelity, faithfulness, commitment. And not just commitment to ourselves as individuals, but commitment to each other. Jesus would say, when the religious leader says, what's the most important commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbor as yourself. It is the core of our faith, but all of us are on a journey, aren't we, of wrestling with Who is this God? And as I mentioned, God condescends, right? He steps down to us. Communion and at that Passover, first Passover meal, where Jesus was sitting around the table with his friends, those we call the disciples. He invites them into a story that started in the Exodus. That was the Passover of God's rescue. God's radical love and fidelity and faithfulness and grace, fellowship. And he takes that story and says, now in me, this story is even more. After giving thanks, he, he took the bread there they shared and he broke it and he said, this is my body. Right? The, the story is no longer about putting blood on the door frames and, and making some, some matzah. <laughs> bread without yeast, the story is about me giving my body for you. As often as you do this, Jesus says, do this remembering me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In the same way, he took the cup that they shared together. As they were in fellowship with one another, he said, This cup is a covenant. It's a promise in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Sometimes our words connect. Sometimes what I say up here, whatever reason, by the grace of God, makes sense to you. But sometimes we need to touch. We need to taste in order for it to make sense. And that's Christ's invitation to you this morning not just to hear God's word, but the touch to taste and see. So if you believe in Jesus, if you're even wrestling with who Jesus is, that means you're you're wrestling with this faith thing. Jesus has come to the table. You don't have to have it all figured out to come to the table. But come and receive the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Not just fellowship with God, but fellowship with one another. So if those serving uh, in our worship team would come forward, uh, I'm going to say a a prayer for us. So please come forward. God, as we hear your word about who you are, and Lord, it's not an asterisk. The reality of talking about you is there are limits. I'm a human being. I can't make you make sense for us. I can do my best, I can use what's available, I can use everything I've known about you. But at the end of the day, Holy Spirit, we need you to open our eyes. We need you to help us see. Whether it's to comprehend your nature, or how you work, or it's to comprehend the implications of what this means. Spirit, we need you to help us understand, God, your grace, your love, and life with you, fellowship. And so now we pray that you would do that through the bread and the juice. God, take these ordinary elements and by your Spirit, join through them, pour out your grace to us and join us to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.